Well, I'd like you to take a Bible out and find Psalm 109. And while you turn to Psalm 109, I'll be totally honest with you right out of the gate. This is the one psalm I've been dreading preaching about. And uh, when, I, when I started to plan this series back several months ago, I thought I'd, I didn't really want to do all 150 psalms. So I said we're going to do about 30. And I want to make sure that we cover all of the different genres or all of the different types of psalms. I don't want to leave any type of psalm out. So we need to talk about a psalm of praise, and we need to talk about a psalm of trust, and we need to talk about a a psalm of lament, and we need to cover all these bases. We need to talk about messianic psalms, and we've hit some of those, and we have several more still to go in our study of, of the book of Psalms. We've looked at the shortest psalm. We did that last week, Psalm 117. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the longest psalm, Psalm 119. We'll spend several weeks doing that. There's one type of psalm I just, I couldn't skip. I, I would like to have skipped it, but I feel like in a series on psalms, I want you to walk away from this series feeling like you can sort of wrap your arms around the book and anything that you might find in the book. Even if we don't talk about every individual psalm, I want you to be prepared to read and to study and to think through everything that's in this book. And so that means we need to look at Psalm 109. I'll tell you a a story about Psalm 109. We're going to read it in a minute. Uh, Several years ago, when we lived in Oklahoma, we had a Wednesday night Bible study. And I taught it. It was for adults. We met in the chapel. And uh, chapel there at, at First Baptist Kingfisher was a neat building. When they moved across town and built a new facility, they built a chapel that was a miniature version of their old sanctuary downtown. And so it had old pews in it, the old stained glass they took out and they put in there. And so we had adult Bible study in there in the chapel. And we were talking about prayers and we were sort of working our way through the book of Psalms and we came to 109. And so I read 109 in this Bible study, and I just sort of opened it up. I've learned my lesson not to do this. I'm not going to do it this morning, but I just read it, and I just sort of opened it up for comments about 109. And there's a sweet old lady. She was, I'll just, I won't tell you her name. She's just like the classic old church lady, okay? Just, she taught children's Sunday school. If you look in like an old church directory, she was right there, just looked exactly like what you would think a sweet old church lady would look like in small town Oklahoma. And she threw her hand up in the air. She said, I don't like it one bit. I said, really? You don't like it? Oh, that's okay. And before I could sort of jump in there, she said, in fact, I think we might as well just rip it out of our Bible. I don't think it has any place in here. I think David prayed this when he was having a really bad day. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's good. I don't like it. And I don't really want to study it tonight. (laughs) Sort of caught me off guard, right? It's not the kind of comment you expect, especially from a lady like that. Now, can I just be totally honest with you? It was shocking that she said those things out loud, but I guarantee you she was not the only person in the room thinking it. And I guarantee you, as we read Psalm 109 this morning, as we we go through it and we read it, I pray after we read the scripture, typically on Sunday morning, you're going to be thinking, oh man, that's something else. I didn't know that was in the Bible. I kind of feel a little bit differently about the book of the Psalms, knowing that that's in the book of Psalms. But we're going to read it, and we're going to deal with it. And I'll just tell you up front, this sermon will be unlike any other that we, we do on the book of Psalms. 
Typically, what we do is we read the psalm, I give you a little bit of background, and we just sort of try to break it down and see what the text says and apply it to our life. This morning, instead of getting into the weeds and the details and the specifics, I think they're pretty straightforward. When we read it in a minute, he doesn't hold a lot back. It's just sort of all laid out there for you. And what my job this morning, my goal this morning is, is to just sort of give you some tools to help you think through this psalm to help you go back and read it and think through what it might mean and how it might apply to your life. And I'll be totally, totally honest with you. We're going to get to the end of the sermon this morning, and if you're really engaged and connected, you're going to say, I'm not sure I get it all. Because I'm telling you right now, I'm not sure I get it all. This is something you're going to have to take home. If you want to understand it, you're going to have to think about it. You're going to have to read it again. You're going to have to meditate on it. You're going to have to look at other scriptures and try to piece it all together. It's a very, very tough passage. So let me start by giving you some of the background. Number one, it's written to the choir master, and it's bracketed with a call to praise. You need to understand this. Look at the note. It says right up front, this is to the choir master, meaning whoever wrote it, talk about that in a second. David wrote it. He wrote it for corporate worship. And at the very beginning, verse one, he talks about, oh God of my praise. And at the very end, verse 30, he talks about, I will praise him in the midst of the throng, in the midst of the people. The beginning and the end, he's talking about worship. And he's written it to the choir master, which means there's something in this psalm that should move you to worship. Is it difficult? Yes. Is it challenging? Yes. Is it unsettling? Yes. But there's something in Psalm 109 that ought to move you to see God for who he is and to respond to him in worship. So you keep that in mind right out of the gate. Secondly, it's written by David, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now that may seem obvious, but I think it's worth reminding ourselves. It is written by David. You see the note to the choir master, a psalm of David. He wrote it. The king of Israel, a man with flesh and blood, lungs breathing, heart beating, sat down, a real person, and he wrote these words. But because we believe what the Bible says about itself, we believe it's not just David's words, it's also God's words. Again, that may seem obvious, but this was one of the first things I said to the little old sweet church lady who said, let's yank it out of the Bible. I said, now wait a minute. What does 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 say? It says that all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. It's breathed out by God. It's spoken out by God. And it's useful. All of it is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And then I said, don't forget Acts 1, 16. You can, uh, you can look it up later. And we're going to talk about Acts 1 later. But in Acts 1, 16... Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he says, talking about Psalm 109, the Holy Spirit says, quote Psalm 109. He doesn't just say, David says, and then quote Psalm 109, but he quotes this psalm, and his take on it is, this is the words, these are the words of the Holy Spirit. So you just keep that in mind. Nobody's going to rip anything out of your Bible this morning. I'm going to leave it in there. I'm going to say, this is inspired by God. It's supposed to be there. Our job is not to stand in judgment over it, but to come to it humbly and to try to understand it. Thirdly, just being honest, 109 is the most intense, most shocking, imprecatory psalm. And there's really four big ones. Psalm 7, Psalm 35, 69, and 109. That word imprecatory, I put in quotes, comes from a Latin word that means to curse. 
to curse. Not like to say a bad word, a four-letter word you're not supposed to, supposed to say, but to place a curse on somebody. And I realize in a Western worldview, you come in here and you say, curses, the curses aren't real. People don't put curses on people. That's silly. This is silliness. This is very real in the ancient world. And can I just be honest with you? It's very real everywhere else but the United States of America. You have this very Western, secular, naturalistic mindset, and we say, curses, that's a bunch of baloney. Who would believe in something like this? You're the minority on the earth if you don't believe that there's some real power in that. I'm just saying, this is real, it's serious, and these imprecatory psalms is where someone is praying, David is praying, and he's calling down, praying down a curse on another person. Lastly, this is important. I promise you, Psalm 109 can be harmonized with passages like these in the Gospel of Matthew. You don't have to turn there right now. Let me just refresh your memory. Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When Jesus said that, I don't think he had in mind Psalm 109. Pray for him like this, and you'll see what I mean in a minute. Matthew 6, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. I promise that fits with what we're about to read. Matthew 22, love your neighbor as yourself. I promise you that fits with what we're about to read in Psalm 109. Okay, so there's a little bit of background. We're going to read it, and we're going to pray for wisdom, and then we're going to jump in. You follow along. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him, Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. 
But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I'm gone like a shadow at evening. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they seek me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly. And as always, we want your word to be an authority over us. We pray that we would not, this morning, as we come to a difficult passage, that we would not sit in judgment or sit in authority over your word as if that's our place, but that you would give us wisdom as we seek to understand and as we seek to think about what this means for us today. We pray for your wisdom, we pray for your guidance, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I know that I made a, a joke sort of about the, the experience I had with the lady in Oklahoma. And I'm just going to tell you, from this point on, I don't have any jokes. I don't have anything funny to tell you. And I don't, I don't know that after you read Psalm 109, it's really the point to be funny or to try to be funny. And we're not going to try to dissect every verse, and I'm not going to try to explain every phrase and every word. I just want to give you ten reminders, ten thoughts, ten truths to keep in your brain as you read a passage like this so that when you leave and you're studying the book of Psalms and you come to 7 or 35 or 69 or 109, any of these imprecatory Psalms, you've got a grid to filter these through and you've got a way to approach them and to interpret them and to understand them. So I'm going to give you these truths and then we'll wrap up and respond to the Lord in worship. Right out of the gate, I want you to see the sections. So look in the text. There's three sections in this psalm. The first one goes from verse 1 to 5. And in your Bible, you might notice a little white space between verse 5 and 6, a little extra uh, indention there and extra space there. That's the editor's telling you there's a little break here. Verse 1 to 5 go together. And in verse 1 to 5, David is saying, hear my prayer. Hear what I'm about to ask of you. Save me. I need salvation and it can only come from you. That's where he starts. And then in verse 6, all the way down to verse 20, he's calling down, he's praying down these curses on his enemies. That's the the curses, or if you want to use the, the more Latin term, the imprecations that he's calling down on his enemies. And so maybe you see a little space between verse 20 and 21. And then 21 to the end is David sort of summarizing it back up again, saying, I need you to hear me. I need you to save me. Hear my prayer. Don't forget me. Save me. I need salvation, and it can only come from you. So there's three sections. And you can't miss, before we jump in, you can't miss the reason that David is praying these things. Some of you, because I know how people think, some of you read Psalm 109 just now and you thought, 
I didn't know that was in the Bible. I didn't know I could pray that for people I don't like. <laughs> I, I didn't know I could do that. This, can I do that? Can I not do that? I, you're thinking of people that irritate you. I'm not like talking get on your nerves a little bit. I'm talking about people that really irritate you. You're thinking about that, and you're saying, Is it, can I pray this for them? I don't know how that works. How does that, how does that fit? Listen, David is not praying this for people who got on his nerves. David is not praying these curses because he had a personality conflict with somebody that just rubbed him wrong. Look what the text says, starting in verse 2. Wicked and deceitful mouths have lied about David. The text says he's been encircled with words of hate and he has been attacked without cause. The text says, verse 4 and 5, that he has shown love to these people And they've responded with accusations. Verse 5. He's been good to them. He's been loving to them. They've responded with evil. And they've responded with hatred. Look down at verse 16. It says, these people did not show kindness. You say, well, I know a lot of unkind people. Well, this is what he means. He explains it. These people pursued the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted and put them to death. These were people in a position of power and authority who took advantage of people who were helpless to the point that they killed them. This is not somebody who gets on your nerves. It's not the person you just don't like interacting with. This is somebody who had God-given position of power and authority and responsibility and they used it to murder helpless, innocent people. That's what we're talking about here. The text says that this person loved to curse. They refused to bless. That's why he prayed it. What did he actually pray? I don't think you need me to summarize it for you, but I'm going to summarize it for you. He prayed that God would destroy them. David prayed about the people he's thinking about that God would destroy them. And David understood exactly what the implications of God answering that prayer would be. Because he says, down in verse 9, if you do this, his children are going to be orphans. And his wife's going to be a widow. And in the ancient world, that means nobody's going to be there to take care of them. There's no social safety net back then. He's praying that God would destroy these people. That's a heavy prayer. That does make you think twice about whether or not it belongs in the Bible. But I'm going to give you these ten reasons why it does and how it all fits together. And then we'll sing. So here we go. Number one. The imprecatory psalms were written by King David. King David. You've got to get this right off, right off off the first, right out of the gate, right at the beginning. This is not an individual citizen in Israel writing the imprecatory psalms. Go look them up. All the ones I listed for you earlier, 7, 35, 69, 109. All of them have a note at the beginning that says they were written by David. And David was not just any old guy in Israel. He was the king in Israel, meaning God gave this man the power of the sword. 
You and I live in a day and a time when God has given the power of the sword not to the nation of Israel, but to governments, to people in positions of authority. You can read about that in the book of Romans. He's given the power of sword to those that he's placed in positions of power. But in this setting and in this context, David held that power. That means David had responsibility for how he used that sword and he did not use that sword. He's not just a citizen in Israel. He's the king of Israel. And he has a responsibility to protect the needy, the poor, and the brokenhearted. That would be something that David would give an account for as king. David, you were king over my people. What did you do to protect the needy and the poor and the brokenhearted? David knows that when those folks in his kingdom are abused, that falls back on him. So he's praying, not just as a citizen, but he's praying as the king. Second, David's talking about unrepentant enemies of God and unrepentant enemies of his people. Again, not to beat a dead horse, these are not people who had personality conflicts with David, like he was type A and they were type B and they just couldn't get along. These are not people who irritated him. These are not people who did something that offended him and then came and apologized and David said, nope, forget it, you're done, I'm not moving on from that. These are unrepentant enemies of God first and secondly of his people. They murdered the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. They loved to curse. They responded to the love that David showed them with hatred and cursing and violence and false accusations. Unrepentant enemies of God. The words that David says here are really intense, but you've got to get this through, the, through your brain and through my brain. The things that these people did, the little glimpse of it we get in Psalm 109, the things that they did were really bad. And they're unrepentant about it. They don't feel bad about it. They don't feel sorrow or remorse or any of that. They're unrepentant enemies of God. Thirdly, David rightly expects God to deal with people who live in unrepentant rebellion. He's right to expect that. A couple of weeks ago, in our study through Psalms, I gave you a warning. The warning I gave you was to be careful that you don't say this or be careful of people who do say this. Something like, I just couldn't believe in a God who, then you fill in the blank. And the warning I gave you was a warning because if God is God, you don't get a say in what he's like. You don't get a vote in that. It's not a democracy like, yes, we want you to be this way. No, we want you to be that way. He is who he is, so you don't get a vote. So that was my warning. Now I'm going to very cautiously use a similar phrase this morning. Would you really want to serve a God who did not bring justice on the wicked, on those who are unrepentant? Would you really want to live in a world, in a universe, where you knew there would be no ultimate reckoning? Would you really want to live in a place where you knew that ultimately, those who did the most wicked things that you ever saw or heard about or knew about would face absolutely no consequence whatsoever? I don't think you would want that sort of deity, and that's good because that's not the sort of deity that we're dealing with in the Scriptures. Scriptures say that God is a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. He will make things right. And when David prays that those who live in unrepentant rebellion would face the justice and the judgment of God, he's right to expect that. 
This is hard for us because we live in a culture that every day beats us into just saying, you need to be tolerant, you need to be accepting, just have to go with the flow, it's not your place. And sometimes when we read the Bible and we learn that God isn't like our culture wants him to be, it's shocking to us. And we realize just how much we've bought into what our culture says to us every day. I mean, you say, oh, I know, I don't, I don't buy into all that baloney. But then you read Psalm 109 and you say, huh, I didn't know God was like that. I didn't know people could pray things like that and God would be okay with it. It's because we're conditioned every day just to be tolerant and to be passive and to be accepting of anything and everything get, that gets thrown our way. And David is sort of like, he's got this megaphone, he's standing up and he's saying, wait a minute. These are unrepentant, wicked people. What do you expect God to do? Overlook it? Just pretend like it didn't happen? To wink at it? To push it under the cosmic rug in the living room and just ignore that big lump? No. He's right to expect God to deal with it. Listen, many years ago, C.S. Lewis gave a warning. It's kind of prophetic. He said, if your culture and your society is not outraged at evil, you're in trouble. If you live in a place with a people and there's not outrage at clear wickedness, that's a bad place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. That's where we are. And we're conditioned to think that way. It's no big deal. Whatever. I'm used to it. It's all the same. It's not my place. And Psalm 109 just sort of beats us over the head and says, what do you expect God to do with unrepentant wickedness? Just forget about it? Wink at it? It's not who he is. It's not going to happen. What number are we on? Number four. David is not praying out of malice, and he did not take matters into his own hands. Verse four and verse five say twice that David loved these people. He loved them. We know from David's life that he was always hesitant to take matters of revenge into his own hands. You think about the example of Saul pursuing David. At least twice, David had the chance to pin him to the ground, and he didn't do it. He realized that vengeance was the Lord's. It was not his to take. You think about when David's son Absalom led a foolish, pitiful coup in Jerusalem against his father. David could have put that coup down in a heartbeat, and instead he ran away. He wasn't eager to be violent. He wasn't eager to take vengeance. And he's not praying out of malice in his heart for these people. Fifth, even when it's not spoken, there's always an allowance for repentance. And the example I would point you to is the book of Jonah. I know that when we hear the story of Jonah retold, Jonah goes to Nineveh and he tells everybody to repent or else. But go back and check the book of Jonah. He doesn't tell anyone to repent. He simply says, in 40 days, God's going to blow you up. you got 40 days, and then it's all over. Never was anyone told to repent. Never was anyone told that if they repented, God would relent of this disaster. But they did repent, and God did relent of the disaster he promised to bring about them. That's how you make sense of the end of the book of Jonah, where he feels like a fool because he told them something was going to happen that ended up not happening. I realize that when you read Psalm 109, there's no footnote where David says, now, if you will repent of your sins and invite Jesus into your heart, I'll take all this back. He doesn't say that. But I'm just telling you, that's always how God operates. 
Sometimes he calls people to repentance. Sometimes he warns them with destruction. But there's always an allowance for repentance. You see it in Jonah, and I think you see it here in Psalm 109 as well. Number six, David knew that he was forgiven, and he wanted the nations to worship God. You can look at Psalm 32 and 67. You say, what in the world does this have to do with Psalm 109? It has everything to do with Psalm 109. When you read Psalm 109, if you don't read the rest of the book of Psalms, you may say, this sounds like a self-righteous Pharisee who doesn't think he's ever done anything wrong and he's mad at people who have done something wrong. Doesn't David know that he deserves to be punished as well? And the answer is, yes, he knows. He's completely and fully aware of his own sin. And he realizes that forgiveness and grace can be found in God, Psalm 32. You might read this psalm and you say, well, this just sounds like some sort of racist, hateful guy who's praying against the enemies of God, means they're not Jewish probably, and he's praying for these Gentiles that God would just blow them up. He loves the Jews, he hates everybody else. It's just a sort of a racist, ethnic issue here. I don't understand. No, read Psalm 67. Read the rest of the book of Psalms. Over and over it's talking about the nations. We want the nations and the peoples and the families of the earth to worship the one true God. It's not the prayer of somebody who's self-righteous like a Pharisee. It's not the prayer of somebody who just hates people from other nations or countries or places. So take both of those thoughts and just take them off the table as you look at Psalm 109. Number seven, Acts chapter one reminds us that Judas is the kind of person in view. So in Acts one, it's describing Judas and what he had done. And twice, Luke quotes the Old Testament in describing Judas. Both of them come from the book of Psalms. Both of them come from imprecatory Psalms, cursing Psalms. And that's very intentional on Luke's part to say, this is the kind of person in view in Psalm 109. Somebody who would be close to somebody, but lie to them and deceive them all along the way, and ultimately care more about 30 pieces of silver than a friendship that had lasted three years. The sort of intimate, personal betrayal that you see in the life of Judas is the kind of betrayal we're talking about here in Psalm 109. Again, not a personality conflict, not somebody who rubs you the wrong way, not somebody who's done something that offended you, but somebody who has betrayed you despite the love that you showed them. Number eight, Revelation 6.10 describes glorified believers in heaven praying for reckoning. This is another passage I shared with my friend in Oklahoma. I said, look, if you're going to rip out Psalm 109, you might as well flip to the New Testament and rip out Revelation 6. Because it's almost the same thing in miniature version in Revelation 6.10. Revelation 6.10, you get a glimpse of heaven and there are believers, Christians, who have died and they're in heaven. They're waiting for the day of resurrection where they have a new body united with their their glorified soul. But they're in heaven. They're no longer struggling with sin. They're no longer in the, the process of sanctification. They're in the presence of God and they're still praying. And one of the things they pray is this, Revelation 6.10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Meaning, They're praying in heaven, how long, God, till you go down there and get those people who killed us? We read that and we say, oh, shouldn't pray things like that. God's probably about to tell them that's not a very nice way to pray. That's not what God says to them. You know what he says? Just wait a little bit longer. 
I'm going to. I'm going to put it all right. I promise you. In my timing, I will make it right. This goes back to the idea that David was right to expect God to deal with those who were, who were living in unrepentant sin. It's right to expect that because it's reality. And you see it in Revelation 6.10. The same idea. Number nine. Now we're sort of moving towards application just a little bit. You and I are not King David and our church is not Israel, neither is any other church. So I don't think we should pray these psalms for people that you know in your life. I got commentaries at my office, and there's a handful of guys that disagree with me. You can disagree with me. But I don't think our situations are comparable enough to take this form of prayer and to implement it into your prayer time, like you're going to write these out in your prayer journal. I just don't think you are in the same situation that King David was in. I think there's a difference between New Covenant and Old Covenant. Now, I do not think, if we're not going to pray it, you say, well, what's the use? We're not going to pray it. Go back to the the idea we're just going to rip it out. We don't need it. At least we're going to ignore it. That's not the point. That's not what I'm saying. Because way back when we began, I said, look, it's a corporate song of worship. It's written to who? The choir master. And it begins and it ends with praise, meaning there's something in here that we learn about God that ought to move us to worship. And it moved David to worship, and the exact same thing ought to move us to worship. And here's one thing for you to chew on. The imprecatory Psalms, this is number 10, highlight the horror of what happened at the cross. Look, when you read Psalm 109, if you can read it and feel light and casual and easygoing, you need to read it again because you missed it. It's heavy and it's weighty and it's unsettling and it's a little bit disturbing. They're called imprecatory psalms for a reason. David is calling down curses on God's enemies, on those who are unrepentantly walking in rebellion against the one true God. And when you read that, it's not a light thing, it's a heavy thing. And when you feel the weight of that, you ought to just stop and almost shudder. Whether you literally do it or emotionally you do it, you ought to just stop and say, this is intense. And the intensity of Psalm 109 and these imprecatory psalms is intended to show you the horror of what really happened at the cross. Look at Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. There's our word, curse. How did he do it? He became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. You realize what David is really praying in Psalm 109 is that Psalm 109 is that the full measure of God's wrath would be brought down on his enemies. And you realize that at the cross, Jesus took the full measure of God's wrath for his people. You realize if you're a follower of Jesus, the curses in Psalm 109 should ultimately be applied to you and to me. But the good news of the gospel is that God withheld that judgment from us, not just to forget about it or to to ignore it or to pretend like it was no big deal, but he took the full measure of that judgment and he put it on his son. And he bore the weight of this curse. Galatians 3, he became this curse so that we could live.
And I hope you think about that when you read Psalm 109. I hope you don't just think the audacity of David to pray something like this. Who does he think he is? How do you justify praying something like that? I hope you walk away amazed, not with David's audacity, but with the audacity and the outrageousness of what the gospel is. That this curse that should have fallen on me and should have fallen on you fell on the sun so that we could go free and have life. And this morning, maybe some of you have never put your faith in your hope and your trust and your confidence in Jesus Christ. Maybe you say, you know, I've been trying to be a good person. I've been trying to be a church person. I've been trying to be a nice person. I've been trying, trying, trying. And maybe this morning for the first time, you just need to admit, I'm a sinner. I've broken God's laws. I say things. I do things. I think things that are not honoring to God. And maybe as we read Psalm 109 and you think about the sin in your life, maybe the light bulb goes off and you say, that's me. I'm the one that deserves those curses to to fall on my head. And maybe this morning you would say, I believe that Jesus died. Not just to be a good example for me, not just because it was a nice thing to do, but he died bearing the full weight of this curse so that I could live. And I pray that if you've never put your hope in Jesus, that you would do that today as we think about Psalm 109. So I want to pray. You bow your heads and we'll end with prayer. Father, we're grateful for your word. And we come to this passage and it's difficult and it makes us think and it makes us uncomfortable. And Father, forgive us when we think about the gospel and what you have done for us in Christ and it doesn't make us uncomfortable. Father, give us wisdom to understand Psalm 109. Give us wisdom to to see how it might apply to our life or not apply. Father, help us to walk away in worship. Not in judgment over your word, but in worship in response to your word. Father, this passage reminds us that you are just and holy and right and good and you will bring judgment on your enemies. And even though that goes against everything in our culture, your word says that we should respond to who you are in your justice, in your righteousness with worship. And so we want to do that this morning. Father, I pray for those who are here who have never put their hope in Jesus. And I pray that as they see the horror and the, the intensity of your wrath and your anger towards sin, that they would run to the cross, that they would believe in Jesus and that they would hope in what he's done for them. Father, be honored as we, your people, corporately respond to you in worship for who you are as the righteous one and the just one and for who you are as the one who sent your son to become a curse for us. You are worthy of our praise and we offer it gladly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.